to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 this morning. Sunday morning we are studying the book of 1 Corinthians together, and we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles uh, today, uh, this morning, and you just wave and they'll spot you and they'll get a Bible into your hands. That Bible will be marked to our very passage we're studying this morning, and uh, that way you can hear the Word of God, but follow along with your eyes And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and our journey through the book, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whatever, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it's fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for the power of it, We thank you that it does not return void, that it has the final say in human history, it has the final say in every circumstance, every trial, every situation that we face in life. Thank you for the power of your Word and your faithfulness that is coupled with it. We thank you, Lord, as we consider these four verses that we study this morning. We think about how many millions and millions and millions of people have read this passage, and you have spoken to them through it, and we pray, Lord, for that same experience in our lives today. Thank you that you love us the way that you do. Thank you that you're for us. Thank you, Lord, that you never stop working in our lives until every portion of our lives is conformed into the image of Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would use our time in these four verses to accomplish that to a further degree, how we love to grow into Christ-likeness and to experience the freedom, the fullness of life that is found there and that is only found there. We ask these things of you, Father. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The church at Corinth was a church that was filled with all kinds of problems. All churches have problems, but this church was extraordinary and because they had the problems that they have for the simple reason that they were a very carnal group of Christians there, and to be carnal is to be dominated by the flesh. And so their lives were not being conformed to the image of Christ. They wanted to be Christians. They wanted to go to heaven someday. They still wanted to run their lives this side of heaven. And so their lives were very uh, self-dominated, self-directed, and as a result, very, very selfish uh, lives that were being lived. And so you get a whole congregation of those folks together. I mean, it's trouble at the Elks Club. It's certainly trouble... Uh, in a church. And uh, so Paul spent the majority of this letter, chapters 1 through 14, addressing and correcting 
all of these kind of practical problems that there were going on in the church. They were divided in their different factions, and I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, and he had to direct that. Christians were taking Christians to court and uh, suing them. Sexual immorality was going on within the church, and nobody was even blinking related to it. Paul spoke to them about how to properly uh, view and exercise Christian liberties, how the worship service is to be conducted in a way that reflects God and the fact that He's a God that does things decently and in order, how to exercise spiritual gifts in a way that's helpful for other people and not in order to bring attention to myself. And so he's dealing with all of these practical issues. And then in chapter 15, he heads into the one major correction of doctrinal error that had established itself in the church, and that was this idea that was, there was, uh, is no resurrection. And then in chapter 16, he closes this letter on a very, very personal note. I think that sometimes there can be this sense that after having experienced the mountaintop experience of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 of the resurrection, that we then come to chapter 16. Maybe you've even done it in your devotional life. You kind of come to chapter 16, and it's, and it's like, well, I'll scan through. He's just got a few different things to say here, and he's just closing the thing up. But surely what he has to say in chapter 16 in his closing isn't uh, nearly as significant as what he said in the rest of the letter, and certainly not as significant as what he brought out in chapter 15. But of course, that would be uh, a terrible mistake, because this chapter gives us some priceless insights into how the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, viewed three very important subjects. And the subjects were money or giving, and making plans for the future, and how to treat people. And because money and time and people are three of the most valuable resources that we will ever handle in our Christian lives and in our ministries. They're very, very important uh, to re receive Paul's instruction here on this, and of course, great interest to each of us. And this morning, we're going to focus specifically on the first of those three things, Paul's view concerning money and giving in the life of a Christian. Now, the context of this uh, instruction is found in Paul's words there in verse 1, where he says, now concerning the collection for the saints. And so we ask ourselves, what was this collection for the saints? This refers to a collection that Paul was receiving from among the Gentile churches, and Gentiles are simply non-Jews. And so he, Paul was receiving a collection from among the Gentile uh, churches that he had established in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, for the purpose of meeting the physical needs of the Christians, the Jewish Christians who were in Jerusalem. And so this offering involved the churches in Derby and Lystra, Iconium, uh, Pisidian Antioch, all names that we become familiar with as places that Paul established churches in his missionary journeys. And apparently, the church at, Cor at Corinth had heard about this offering 
and they had inquired of Paul about how to get involved in it. That's why he says, now concerning this, uh, this was something they had brought up. Now, the need among the Christians in Jerusalem was significant. At that period of time, a great famine, and indeed a series of famines, it appears, had settled on uh, the area of Israel. And so, anytime you have a famine that comes in and engulfs an entire area of the world, that part of the world then becomes dependent upon the help of other parts of the world in order to make their way through this uh, famine, in order to survive. The impact of a famine upon Jerusalem at that time would have had a more acute effect upon the Christians who were in Jerusalem than even upon the regular Jewish uh, uh, person in Jerusalem. Because whatever financial support would have poured into Israel at that time from Jews who lived in other parts of the world that were unaffected by the famine, those resources would have been given to uh, Jews who had not converted to Christianity. So money is tight, resources are tight, and here is the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. They are a despised and persecuted sect among the Jews, and so you can be sure that no money was filtering down to them, even as a part of the benevolence programs among the Jews. So if the Christian Jews were, were, were uh, going to survive, uh, this famine in uh, Jerusalem, they were going to survive because Christians from another part of the world took notice of their plight and then began to help them in the midst of uh, the situation that they were in. It also isn't unlikely that uh, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were also facing uh, a persecution for their faith by the Jews that made money hard to come by. So you become a Christian as a Jew in those days. The persecution was great, nowhere greater than in Jerusalem. And so you would find that your business would be boycotted by other Jews. Uh, you would be cut out and away uh, from the family. Uh, you'd be ostracized from other Jewish people, and it could put, just put you out of business overnight. You'd be laid off from your job. And so these Jewish Christians were in a very difficult place in Jerusalem. Paul recognized it. He was a Jew. He came from Jerusalem. He knew what they would have been facing uh, to continue to serve the Lord in Jerusalem in that day. And so his finger was on the pulse concerning all of it. And then this famine comes in on top of everything, and he realized somebody needs to take care of them, and if not Christians, then who else? Now, this offering was intended to accomplish a couple of things. It was intended to meet the uh, physical needs of the saints in Jerusalem, but it was also intended by Paul to build a bridge between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. That was a big divide between Jew and G Gentiles in those days. And even among the Christians, they were still kind of getting used to one another. And the Jews uh, viewed the Gentiles with great suspicion. 
had been greatly persecuted by the Gentiles. And the Gentiles viewed the Jews as this kind of goofy thing that happened, you know, people did over here, and all of the traditions that had been added to Judaism and all of this kind of stuff. So there was a gulf. And Paul was this Jewish, a Pharisee of the Pharisees before he became a Christian. He understood the Jews inside and out, and yet he was the apostle to the Gentiles. So he was the great um, uh, ambassador to unite these two groups of people together. And he thought, well, what could do uh, that more effectively than to come to the Jewish people on behalf of the Gentiles. The Gentiles bring an offering of money to help supply their needs, and what a wonderful uh, uh, bridge that that would build between the two groups to just kind of nurture a mutual concern for one another and, uh, and to nurture within the thinking of all Christians that the body of Christ is bigger than our local church. It's bigger than the church at Lystra. It's bigger than the church at Iconium or at uh, Pisidia Antioch. And to remind the Jews, Jewish Christians, and the Gentile Christians that we're not just members of a local church, but we're a part of a church that exists worldwide, and that we're to have a concern for Christians wherever we find them, in our community or wherever we find them around the world. And so there really is that spirit of the three musketeers, one for all and all for one. And that's the attitude that we're to have uh, concerning one another in a local church, but also Christians, again, in our community and around the world. Well, in Corinth, you know, things were going financially and materially very well for them. But in Jerusalem, things were much harder and, uh, for the believers there, and they needed to look out for one another. And, of course, that goes on all around the world today. Now, clearly, the Apostle Paul, and this is very significant, the Apostle Paul wanted every church that he planted to have an active concern for the health and the well-being of the body of Christ as a whole. Christians everywhere around the world. It wasn't a case of, you know, us four and no more, or we're just going to kind of take care of our own here. But he wanted them to realize you're a part of a church, but you're a part of a church that exists all around the world. And it is a, a sign of a healthy church, a spiritually healthy church will always give the, to the needs of other Christians in the world beyond their own church. Now, even though this passage deals with a, a special missionary uh, offering here, there are principles that Paul lays down here that may be uh, gleaned uh, concerning giving on the part of a Christian in general. And we want to glean a handful of those things from the passage and then take an offering. Just kidding. Uh, some of you are like clutching your wallet in your purse. We already took the offering. We didn't take the offering. We received the offering. And, uh, and, and so you don't have to sweat all of this. Number one, we want to notice in verse two that giving is to be a universal practice of every single Christian. You notice in verse 2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you, 
lay something aside. And so giving is unapologetically, unapologetically, giving is an essential part of Christianity. Jesus taught it as a part of the rules of his kingdom. He said in Luke chapter 6, given it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. Elsewhere, Jesus taught us as his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Don't, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So every Christian is to give something to God's work. Every Christian is to be engaged financially in what God is doing in this world, in what we know as the Great Commission. Whether a person is rich or whether they are poor, whether they are, were in the ancient world a slave or whether they were free, each person is to give something for the assisting or the blessing of the larger body of Christ. And the financial support of God's work is everybody's responsibility. And this passage teaches us that we must not allow even poverty to keep us from giving something to God and to His work in this regard. It may not be much, but it needs to be something. It may be a dollar. It may be five dollars. It may be ten dollars. It may be 50 cents, but it needs to be something. As we know from Jesus' comments related to uh, a widow who came to the temple in Jerusalem uh, late in his ministry, she came to the treasury there in the area of the temple where people would give to the work of God and the support of the work of God. And she threw in two mites. I mean, it's like less than a couple of pennies that she gave to the Lord. And the Lord took, pulled his disciples over, watched what she had done, and then made it a teachable moment uh, for them. And the point that Jesus made to the disciples, what she had put in would have been considered nothing by the average person, even by a poor person in those days. But she was a widow, and there was no Social Security, no pensions, no anything in those days. She's a widow. She has these two mites, and she gives them uh, to God. And so it wasn't how much she gave, but it was the sacrifice, Jesus said, that it represented that caused Jesus to uh, praise her. Sometimes we can think in our giving, well, what difference will the little bit that I can give make? That's not your problem. That's not my problem. It's God's problem to make much of what we give to Him. Our responsibility is to give something uh, to him as he calls us to. Now, the kingdom of God doesn't operate the way 
uh, the United States does and the IRS does here, where a large number of people are kind of exempt from uh, federal taxes because they, uh, ha their income is below a certain level. And so they don't have to pay federal income taxes. And sometimes people just begin to look and say, well, because the federal government considers the me, me to be too poor to have to pay taxes on a level that others do, and it comes right back into the church, and people begin to look, and they accept that kind of definition. I'm poor. I have limitations as a result of it. And I, they carry it over into their spiritual relationship with the Lord, and they say, because I'm poor, I'm not going to give anything to God. But the kingdom of God doesn't operate uh, that way. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in giving, uh, God established for his people. Everyone is to give something because giving is not supremely about the money. It is about what it does in us as God's people. And that's very, very important to us understand that giving is never supremely about the money or raising money. It's supremely about what giving does in us as God's people. As the old saying goes, it's not about raising money, it's about raising children. God could fund His work on this earth very easily, in fact more easily, by just doing it supernaturally. He can speak gold into existence, silver into existence, uranium, plutonium, diamonds, emeralds. He can speak all of it into existence. If he wanted to, he could dispatch angels on a weekly basis to deliver gold and cash to every missionary or every church or every Christian missionary on a weekly basis all around the world. And it would be effortless for him to do so. In fact, it would be easier for him to supply in that way. And so he could so readily do it. And so the Lord certainly isn't broke, and he certainly isn't need, in need of our money. So why has he chosen to accomplish his work through the giving of his people. It's not because he needs the money. That's off the table. It must be, mean that it accomplishes something important in us spiritually, and that something must be something that we cannot learn or experience in quite any other way. And that is it exactly. For instance, every time we give to God, we give away a little bit of our selfishness and our self-centeredness. I won't speak to you, but I have a fair amount of selfishness to give away in my life, even yet as a Christian. And that's why when we give, we always feel a little bit freer from our selfishness for having done so. And it's a wonderful feeling, and every giver understands that feeling. And this is why 
the more selfish and self-centered a person is, the greater the need they have to give. And yet that Christian will have the greater tendency to ignore that part of the Christian life. They'll explain it away in their life in some way. Well, it's this or that, or I can, and I, I can't, and this, and everything, and they just want my money, and all the whole thing, and all. And as a result, they will remain selfish and self-dominated until the day they die, just living their entire life in that little tiny world of I, me, and my. Every time... I give, I'm planting a little more of my heart in heaven. I, I become more heavenly minded as a result of it. Again, Jesus said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so giving to God is not so much about money. It is really much more about keeping our heart well-directed as Christians directed and focused on heaven and focused upon eternity. Every time I give to the Lord, there's that satisfaction of knowing that He's using my life to impact other lives. It gives me a focus in life that's as big as God's work, a focus in life that's as big as the world, and it's very, very satisfying in our lives. This is a wonderful thing to know that my life is vitally connected with God's work and that my life is involved in something much bigger than just my life, my own existence. Apart from God working in our lives, the longer we live the progressively smaller our world becomes until it just comes right back down to where almost, you know, they talk about that whole cycle where you begin as a baby and then you end up as a baby, you know. And the babies are all about themselves. And they, without the work of the Lord in our lives, in the area of giving in our lives, our lives can just become more and more, the older we get, more and more focused and focused and focused upon our little world. And it's a terrible prison to live in. There was a, a, um, a woman who uh, said concerning, she said, um, oh, I forget what the, she said something like, um, you know, I don't envy anybody else their male, something like that. And what she was talking about was the fact that even though she was an older person, she was uh, giving to missionaries all around the world and that she would receive the mail that would come and reports on what they were doing, what was happening. That connection with the rest of the body of Christ that keeps us alive, it keeps us young, it keeps us engaged spiritually in a way that is so important. 
early in uh, the history of this church, we began to support other Christian uh, ministries and other Christians involved in uh, critical work for the Lord here in town and all around the world. And because we just wanted to experience that blessing of knowing that we are a part of something bigger than just what happens upon the church grounds, whether it was on 10th and F or on Leveland or all the here or all these different places that we, we met before we finally uh, landed here uh, several years ago, that feeling of knowing we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. So again, uh, this isn't supremely about raising money. It's about raising children. We really do have a need to give that is far greater than uh, God's need to receive. He has no need to receive, and uh, God knows that we have this need to give. Second principle is our giving is to occur regularly, and he talks about that in verse 2 as well. He said, on the first day of the week, and that, of course, is Sunday, and uh, so their giving was to be weekly. In other words, it was to be uh, done regularly, and so it's to occur regularly because there's something about giving that needs to happen in my life regularly. So this giving does something in my life regularly that needs to happen regularly. Every time we give, it's an acknowledgement that all that we have has come from God and it belongs to God. And as we give to the Lord, we say, Lord, as I give this offering to you, I am freshly reminded of the fact that you are my Jehovah Jireh, you are my provider. And it feels good to be reminded of that. And we need to be reminded of that. There's this constant thing about our flesh, the indoctrination of the world, to begin to believe that someone or something else is our provider in life and for our trust to move from God and onto those things. And giving keeps that from happening. Every time we give, there's that fresh recognition that our faith uh, in God, uh, is in God, and that our security is not in my money, but it's in the Lord. And again, that's a constant pull in a materialistic society. And so, as we give, we quietly can pray to the Lord, Lord, as I give this offering to you, I freshly proclaim that you are my source of security in life, not my money or any material things. And that's something we need to be reminded of on a regular basis. Or again, we will find ourselves in a very short period of time in this little prison uh, within ourselves of saying, all right, I'm in this mess that I'm in the middle of. I am uh, needing to support myself. I am, uh, I am the, have the sole responsibility uh, for my own life and my own provision. And life gets very small. It becomes a prison. And giving keeps us from uh, going into that place. Giving keeps us from being taken into the bondage of, again, thinking that money is our security in life. Giving 
is always an expression of freedom from this bondage. And when we give, we say, Lord, I just am thankful that I'm free from the bondage of thinking that money is my uh, loan security in life. And money is a wonderful tool, but it is a very, very cruel master. And that is the truth about it. And if it is our master, we will never know peace. All we will ever know is worry and fear born out of a very real sense of insecurity in our lives. Number three, in verse two, our giving is to be disciplined. In other words, it is to be planned. It is to be systematic. It is to be habitual. He talks in verse 2 about storing uh, up. He says, on the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. Now, in those days, when people worked, for the most part, they didn't get paid every week. They didn't get paid on a monthly basis or every two weeks. They got paid every day. And so, every day they would receive a certain sum of money for the labor that they had performed. Then they would go home, and uh, as a Christian, they would take a portion of whatever they had earned that day, and they would kind of put it in the sugar jar up in the cupboard and let that accumulate over the several days. And then when Sunday came, uh, they would take that accumulated offering, and they'd give it as an offering to the church. And it was a weekly practice. And so this teaches us that our giving isn't to be haphazard. It isn't to be occasional or hit and miss or uh, occurring on special occasions alone. And this is a very, very important principle because some Christians are not uh, systematic in their giving. They only respond to emotional appeals for some need within the church. And they say, well, they must be doing okay because they let us know otherwise. And so they wait for the emotional appeal, they wait for the urgent appeal, and then finally they will give something, not realizing that if everyone gave habitually, gave uh, systematically, as the Bible calls on us to do, then these urgent issues would typically never rise uh, within uh, any work of, uh, of the Lord. So the amount given may vary depending upon rises or drops in our income, but the discipline of giving is always to remain consistent. And again, there, is, there are byproducts to this that go way beyond money in our lives. And uh, there's the old joke about and I'm remembering stories this morning that I didn't plan for, but they come to mind because they've impacted me, but they probably won't impact you because I'm remembering them so foggily. But I remember, which isn't a word, by the way, um, but I remember the, an old joke about the pastor who lamented the fact that every time he baptized uh, a new person into the church, they were always careful to remove their wallet before they were baptized 
and how people's money never ended up getting baptized, you know. The person did, but their money never did. It's a funny thing to remember. I remembered it before. We say, of course you remember it, you're a pastor. Uh, and I remember it from before I was a pastor and because I realized and recognized in my own life the power of money, uh, the power of the hold that it can have on us, that it can become the last thing that we surrender uh, to God as a Christian. And so many people never surrender in this area of their life. They never become disciplined in this area uh, of, their, um, of their life. But when a Christian becomes disciplined and spiritually minded in this area of their life, uh, it always occurs at the expense of their selfishness. And that discipline and that self-denial that occurs in giving, that then translates into many other areas of our spiritual lives. And it ends up producing dramatic spiritual growth and freedom in our Christian lives. And in fact, the truth is concerning any Christian, there will be vast portions uh, of our life that will be closed to the Christian who does not embrace this spiritual discipline of giving. Jesus himself, he declared that a person who is not faithful in handling uh, unrighteous mammon, that is the money that God gives to them, then that person will never be entrusted with, with the true riches from God, which refers to Christian service refers to calling. It refers to spiritual influence within the body of Christ. And why will God not entrust the true riches, spiritual riches, to the person who is not faithful in the giving of money, to the Christian who is not faithful in that way? And the reason is very, very simple. It's because that kind of a Christian is still struggling with whether the Lord or money is the master passion of their life. And as long as that struggle is going on, God does not entrust spiritual influence to that person. Jesus said he was faithful in what is least, is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. And therefore, if you've not been faithful, faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? For if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can to serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. Number four, our giving is to be proportional to our prosperity, he tells us in verse 2, that we are to store up as he may prosper. So here we get to the how much are we supposed to give. And uh, uh, so everybody's to give, but here Paul addresses the amount each Christian is to give. And he tells us that we're to give to the degree that God has prospered us. And those who are blessed with more should give more. And the Christian who's blessed to have an income that is higher than what is required to meet our daily needs should give more than the Christian who is holding down two jobs 
in order to keep a roof over his head and the head of his wife and his children and to keep food uh, on the table. Everyone is to give, but the one is to give uh, more. So again, we remind ourselves of what Jesus said concerning the widow who casts in her two mites into the treasury. He said, for all of these out of their abundance have put uh, in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all of her, in all the livelihood that she had. So again, God does not measure the gift that is given to him on the basis of the amount. He always measures it on the basis of the sacrifice that's represented in the giving of the gift. That's important to realize. Somebody in the might say, might think, well, I've heard that before. That's fine. You've heard it again. It's important. A very materialistic society. Money is God in this society. And so, it's a constant fight for us as Christians. And it's important to realize that. Every Christian should give to the degree that in giving this amount to the Lord and to His work, there is the recognition that I have to sacrifice something that I would want in my life in order to do this. And whatever that looks like in whatever income level, then that's where the giving is supposed to be. It is never to be simply, I can give this to God and it has no impact upon me whatsoever. It should, giving should always reach down into the place where someone says, Lord, this costs me something to give this to you. And I honor you in this way, but I know you'll also uh, take care of me as I give to you in this way. Jesus taught, for to everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So wealth is a great blessing. And so everybody wants to be rich. Everybody wants to be wealthy. If only I had, then I would start giving or this kind of thing, you know, these things that we deceive ourselves with. It is not an easy thing to be rich, I think. I'm not speaking from experience. Um, but of course, rich is relative to where you live in the world. The old joke is, is that, um, you know, how much more do you have to make in order to be rich a little bit more. So even rich people don't consider themselves to be rich because of the circles that they run in. There's always someone who's making $100 million more a year than they are. So this goofy thing that we play uh, in, in our minds. But there's a tremendous responsibility for the Christian in terms of wealth. And there is... Uh, with that wealth, the responsibility, and really it's true for all of us, to hear God's voice concerning how much of uh, that God wants to have be a part of His work, and then to obey Him related to that. Because all that we have belongs to God, and He's free to use it however He chooses. And, 
every Christian, will, we will one day give an account for our stewardship related to our resources. That's going to happen as a part of being a good and faithful servant and standing before the Lord one day. This principle is very, very important because it reminds us that everything that we have belongs to God and He needs to be sought concerning how we spend all of the money that He gives to us. So often within our culture, even within a Christian culture in the United States, many Christians believe that, okay, this is what I make. They don't even see it as something that God has provided to them, and 10% of it belongs to God, and 90% of it uh, belongs to me, and I can spend it any way that I want. And the fact of the matter is, is that that's not true at all. That's an unbiblical view of our resources. All of it belongs to Him, and His wisdom and His direction is to be sought on how all of it is spent. Now, finally, uh, or next to finally, our giving, verse 2, is to be done joyfully without constraint or without emotional appeals. And that's what Paul is saying here when he says that there be no collections when I come. And so Paul said, you know, when I come, I can, uh, I know that I have a place of influence in, in the church. I know that I'm respected. I know that I could make an emotional appeal for the needs of the people in uh, Jerusalem. I know I could tell a lot of stories and work people in this way. I know that even if I don't do that kind of thing, just by virtue of the fact that I'm there, it's going to put pressure on people to give. And so he says, I don't want any giving to be, have any pressure, even the pressure that I would bring into the congregation when I come and I join you. I want people to give just not with me in their thinking or anybody else in their thinking, just between them and God. And the offering that comes out of that, then that's the offering that we'll take to Jerusalem to meet the needs of the saints that are there. He didn't want any offering to be give, given other than what came out of their own heart and their own relationship with God. And the Bible teaches, in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote this. He said concerning giving, so let each one give as he purposes in his own heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the word cheerful means hilarious. We should break out kazoos and tambourines every time we take the offering. And it would put a whole different tone on it, wouldn't it? But God loves a hilarious, a cheerful giver. How, um, how much do you enjoy if somebody gives you something and they do it grudgingly? Say, take it back. Get it away from me. I don't want your $5. I don't want to borrow your lawnmower. If that's, if that's the attitude, if it's grudging, I, it, it, it ruins the whole thing. So it's like somebody gives you a hundred bucks, but then you're like in the doghouse, and they just remind you of it all the time. And as you hear, they just thrust it right at you. It's like, listen, it's blood money. I'll never spend it. I don't want if anything I would ever buy with it, it, it. I'd choke on it. Because of your attitude behind it, take it. It's, it. it's worse than if you'd given nothing to me. And God's the same way. He only wants what can be given to him in uh, that way. That way, it can be a blessing 
to him in the same way that it would, anything given to us would be a, a blessing. You know, in the years that I've been a Christian and walked with the Lord since 1980, I've seen so much pressure and manipulation, mostly on television, related to trying to separate people, Christians, from their money by someone who's up in front working the crowd. And, um, and I've even been in a service or two where they start to use guilt, they start to use manipulation. You start to use that, and you're not going to get a penny out of me. I don't care if, what would come out of it. I clutch my wallet at that particular moment. But that kind of stuff goes on all of the time, and God is very, very badly represented in that way. He doesn't want anything to be given to him out of guilt or out of manipulation, but only out of motivations of love and appreciation for him. Now, finally, in verses 3 and 4, the final principle is that money should only be given to ministries who are willing to be accountable related to the giving that has been uh, directed uh, towards God's work through them. So Paul doesn't come to them and say, listen, I'm coming, and uh, give me the offering, and I'll make sure that I personally deliver it from Corinth uh, to Jerusalem. doesn't do that at all. Um, he's not like the evangelists or the pastors who take an offering. I wish this didn't happen, but it happens all the time, even to this day. And the offering is taken, and that money's stuffed in their pockets. Uh, as they make their way out to the car, or it's put in their own personal bank account, this kind of stuff. The Apostle Paul, he told them if they so desired, they could choose whoever they wanted from among themselves to deliver the gift to Jerusalem without Paul. He says, you do it, you handle it, you don't have to involve me at all. All I care is that this happens and they get taken care of. So he's not making himself a mediator in any way. And he said, if you want to involve me, I make myself available to you to be a part of whatever group you put together to take uh, the offering to Jerusalem. You choose the men, and I'll be happy if you're not comfortable going alone. I'll be happy to accompany you related to that. But he left the decision completely to them. And both options that he offers to them has a built-in accountability. And ultimately, the churches who gave toward this need in Jerusalem, they did choose a man to accompany Paul and, uh, and the others who were traveling with him to Jerusalem. And Paul rejoiced in that accountability. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians. He said, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Accountability means that the handling of people's worship in the form of giving, that it is set up in a way that it is right in the eyes of God, and it is right in the eyes of people. And the Apostle Paul had a lot of enemies who would have loved to have said, this guy's just in it for the money, and this guy… And no, there was accountability related to money all the way down the line with the Apostle Paul so that he could not be accused of doing what he did uh, related to money and have his effectiveness uh, marred. What is given to God by people is never to be entrusted to any one person, no matter who that person is. 
Now, I close with this. Giving is an act of worship. That's what it is. And giving is a privilege. You think about all of the ways that God has given us to worship Him. And the more we know Him, is to love Him more, is to recognize His blessings on every level more, and to have a desire to worship Him in an even greater measure. With our lips, with our songs, with our service, but also with our giving. And we wouldn't want a single expression of worship that God has given us as a means of opportunity to be taken away from our lives or to be neglected in any way in our lives. And that's why before we receive the Sunday morning offering, we always say, let's continue our worship by receiving this morning's tithes and offerings because giving to God is worship and it is a privilege. And one day, we're going to, as, heaven, as Christians, we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to have a fuller grasp of what God is, uh, has been doing and is doing on the earth and in heaven, and we will marvel even more at the grace God has shown us by allowing us to be involved financially in His work. I think about how terrible it would be if God said, no, you can't have anything to do with it. The door's closed. I have everything that I need. I don't want a penny from you. You can't. And we were forced to spend every single penny we earn or we have on ourselves or on things that are just ultimately going to burn, that we had no opportunity to give to something, some work of God, something that is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. What a terrible way it would be to live and to handle money without that privilege of being able to be involved in all of that. I tell you, everything in this church and everything in any church in the whole world, the seating, the lights, the air conditioning in the summer, the heat in the winter, the tables and the chairs and the children's ministry and in the youth ministry, the paper and the crafts that the children draw on and put together every week in their classrooms, all of it is an expression of someone's worship toward God. And that's exactly how God wants it to be. That everything that's associated with His name, people will look at it and say, I am engaged in somebody. I am participating in. I am benefiting from somebody's worship of God. And that's why I'm going to keep you over one more minute when this facility that the Lord gave us, and some, I, I keep too many stories to myself, candidly, 
um, the near heart attacks that were involved in this thing. Not because of God, but because of myself. There's interesting stories, the things that God did. But you know full well, those of you who have been with us for many, many years, I announced the need one time down on 10th and F. We came and hit a, a date, we hit a moment in time where in order to be able to pull the trigger on building this church, because we couldn't find a facility anywhere else in town that would meet our needs. And, and we hit that place, and there was some sum of money that needed to be happen by Wednesday or whatever the deal was. And I announced that on that one Sunday. And I didn't even know that by the time I made the announcements on that Sunday morning, God had already met the need in the offering in the first service. Somebody, God had already touched somebody's heart. They put a check in. It was already covered. See what little faith I have? But we announced that particular need. No constraint. You want to be a part of it, you can be a part of it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No thermometers, no anything. I thank the Lord that we didn't have to do any of that. We didn't have to beat anybody up and pull every penny out of everybody's life so that every time they drive down Pellendale and see the building, I hate that building. I lost four years of my Christian life. Every Sunday it was that building. I was in the trial of my life, and all it was about was that building. And we didn't have to do it. So that when, not just only the community, but so that when those Christians, those of us who made up the church at that time and do to this day could drive by and say, that's an expression of worship to God. That's how that got built. That's how that got provided. That's the best way. That way, it's a blessing to God and a blessing to us. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for this valuable and needed instruction. And Lord, you know the culture that we live in, so materialistic, so money-driven, the constant message that it is our means of security, and, and then the terrible, terrible bondage and smallness of life and vision and thinking and feeling that results from that. Thank you, Lord, that you're interested in every area of our life and to lead us into freedom and into purpose and into meaning. And we thank you, Lord, that none of this is about money that you need because you don't have it, but your recognition of what giving uniquely does of all of our activities in the Christian life, what it uniquely and necessarily does in our lives. And we thank you, Lord, 
for what it does produce and the life that it does lead us into. And we give you praise and we give you thanks for the privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.